You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come now uh, to your word. And Lord, as we talked about in Sunday school, we, uh, we have this horrible, horrible habit of thinking that we are the sovereign and Lord of our lives. Uh, we know that's not true. And yet our heart rebels against it on a regular basis. So, Father, as we come uh, to your word, uh, would we be reminded that the word judges us and not vice versa? Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And Lord, would what was said of Israel not be said of us? Would we not have foreheads of brass and hearts of stone? For we pray all this now in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if it's entirely true to say that we are currently more divided as a nation than we've ever been. But it is probably safe to say that we're less unified than any other time in the past 50 years. In an intensely polarized climate, it's quite easy to think strictly in terms of us and them. This polarization takes on an extra sense of urgency when the us's reflect on how the they's seem hell-bent for leather on fundamentally altering life as we know it, and we believe, vilifying all who stand in their way. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What recourse do God's people have? Our text for this morning concludes the second major section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. The opening section, known most commonly as the Beatitudes, begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and ends roughly in chapter 5, verse 12. Our current section can be helpfully summarized in this way. William Taylor summarizes it, and I think it's really helpful to think of it in this way. Jesus tells us in this second section that there's to be no hatred in our heart, verses 21 to 26. He tells us in verses 27 to 30 that there's to be no lust in our looks. Verses 31 to 32, he says, there's to be no allowance for adultery. There are to be no lies on our lips, verses 33 to 37. No resting on our rights, verses 38 to 42. And this morning, we learn that there is no limits to our love. There are to be no limits to our love, verses 43 to 48. Now, if you look in your bulletin this morning, you'll see an outline for our time together. 
And in the outline, you see something called the big idea. The big idea, hopefully in one sentence, is what the sermon is about. And so our big idea this morning is this. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot love our enemies. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot love our enemies. Now, it's important from the very beginning that we note that. Because, again, in the day and age in which we live, we're told that there are any number of ways that we can uh, get along with those who disagree with us. We need to be better educated. We need to be more tolerant. We need to be empathetic. And yet Jesus makes it very clear in his words to us that love for our enemy is not something that naturally occurs to us. Rather, it is an indication that the grace of God has had its effect, that the grace of God has done its work and is doing its work in our lives. So three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Uh, be careful how you use made-up scripture. Be careful how you use made-up scripture. Now, all throughout this section, Jesus has begun these six sayings by quoting from the Old Testament. You have heard it said, but I say to you. This is the one instance in which verse 43 is not an Old Testament quote. The closest thing that we have was the text that Abby read for us this morning. And let me read that for you again. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18, we read this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, when we read Leviticus 19, and when we hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, it helps us understand then the question that the Pharisee has for Jesus, which prompts the telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? It's not too much of a stretch in reading Leviticus chapter 19 to think, well, uh, my neighbor is someone who's related to me. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what happened. Over time, the words of Leviticus 19 got twisted. And what started as, you shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, turned into, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible had in mind. And at no point in time, in terms of how we treat one another, is God saying, you know, there's one standard for Israel and there's one standard for everyone else, but at the moment in which Jesus is preaching this sermon, that was the accepted standard. Now, it's easy to come to this and go, well, you know, those people, uh, you know, they, they, they couldn't ask Siri if this was really in the Bible. They couldn't Google it. 
they weren't as well educated as we were. So I guess we can we can give them a little bit of leeway because after all, they're just ignorant pre-modern people. But friends, I want to suggest this morning that we're not immune to these kinds of things. I want to read for you a number of statements, four of them, in fact. By the way, before I read them, I, I, I'm going to tilt my hand. I don't want to embarrass you unduly this morning. Because as I said, two of my favorite ants are here, so I want to be on my best behavior. But just know, none of these statements are in the Bible, and yet when surveyed, 53% of evangelicals believe these statements are in the Bible. Are you ready? And by the way, they are. They're all in the book of 2 Hezekiah. And uh, that's where you can find them. And there is no book of 2 Hezekiah, just in case you were wondering. Here's the first statement not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Not from the Bible, but it did come from poor Richard's almanac. It's a saying of Benjamin Franklin. How about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Again, not from the Bible, but it was a Hindu proverb that the Wesley brothers caught on to and made very famous. This one breaks my heart because I've heard it more often at funerals than I would like. I guess God needed him or her more than we did. Not in the Bible. And friends, let's be reminded that if God needed anything, he would cease to be God. We're fixing to go from preaching to meddling because our last entrant it's perhaps the most famous. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Again, not in the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves the following question. Can you really separate a person and their actions? After all, I could spend all day professing my endless and dying love for my wife on her birthday, which it is today. And yet if my actions speak of neglect or a lack of care or a lack of love, what good do my words do? We cannot separate a person from their actions. So let's be careful how we use made-up scripture. It's very easy to look down our nose at Jesus' audience and go, well, you, you people, you know, I understand you didn't like the Gentiles, you didn't like the Romans, and so you wanted to be able to justify your own sense of nationalistic zeal and pride. But friends, let's be careful how we are using made-up scripture. Secondly, let's understand that this command is fueled by a gracious imitation. It's fueled by a gracious imitation. Jesus, as he's done all throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the statement and then shows his authority, shows that he is indeed king, shows that he is indeed God, and puts his word on equal standing with the scriptures. He does it again in verse 44. But I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. That's a tall order. I don't know if you've ever had enemies, but it's hard to pray for people. It's hard to love people who are committed to your downfall. In fact, it seems like we should be hearing Jesus say something like, protect yourself from your enemies. Right? You don't have to hate them, but just, you know, kind of cover your face. Don't leave yourself open and exposed. Protect yourself from your enemies. And do the same for those who would persecute you. But that's not what he says. He calls us to love them and to pray for them. And then, verse 45, Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. Because he tells us, What is the basis by which we can do this? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you need to love your enemy and you need to pray for those who persecute you because when you do that, you're bearing a family resemblance. When you do that, as sons and daughters of God, you're acting like God acts. You're being gracious in the way that God is gracious. And there's two ways in particular that we can think about that. You see them both in your bulletin. The first one is this idea of common grace. Theologians give us two categories of grace that we can think about. The first one, uh, again, is this idea of common grace. And what that means is that God graciously gives gifts to all of his creation. It doesn't matter if you're a child of God or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. Now, in the Old Testament, David realizes this and he laments it. In fact, in one of the Psalms, he cries out to God and says, God, why do you send rain on the field of the just and the unjust alike? Like, God, shouldn't there be some sort of scale here? That if someone is an enemy of yours, you're going to withhold water from their fields. You're going to withhold the rain. You're going to withhold the crops. Why, God, does the sun rise and shine on the evil? Why does the rain get sent to the just and the unjust? David laments this. He thinks that by doing so, God is the one being unjust. Paul, in Acts chapter 14, as he's speaking at Lystra, says this to a pagan audience. He's telling them, they w- uh, Paul and Barnabas have shown up and they want to they worship them as being uh, Zeus and Hermes. And Paul, in his sermon to them, says this in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good, 
by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul understands common grace as the means by which God is witnessing to himself. God is reminding himself, excuse me, God is reminding us of his love and his care and his concern for all that he has created. He sends the rains to the just and the unjust. And he makes the sun to shine on all of us. That's the common grace. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, if God doesn't discriminate between friend or foe in his giving of common grace, then we should not discriminate in terms of how we give our love. We should not discriminate in terms of who we pray for. In fact, the people who probably we need to be praying for the most are the people who would persecute us. But it isn't just a common grace argument that's being made. There's also a saving grace argument that's being made. He says that so by so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And we can translate that so that you may be sons or daughters of your father who is in heaven. Now, let's understand something. When Jesus says, so that you may be, he's not talking about works righteousness. Don't read this text and think Jesus is telling you, if you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you, that's how you're made right with God. That's not what's going on here. The purpose statement in verse 45 is there to tell us that we can demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of God when we pray for those who persecute us and when we love our enemies. In other words, through our behavior and through our mannerisms, we are to demonstrate a particular kind of family resemblance. Uh, think about if you grow up in a particular house, it's fun, isn't it, to watch uh, people as, a, as, a, as people who've grown up in certain families, and you begin to notice after a time there are little, uh, little ticks, little mannerisms that get passed along between families. Uh, I had a, a, the first pastor I worked for, and I, he's come up a lot today. I'm not sure why, but he would stand, and every once in a while, he would he'd just do this. And he'd be standing preaching, and, and you knew it, he really got going, because, boy, that hip would just be getting pounded. And he, uh, he, they had three kids. The oldest was a daughter and then two boys. And it wasn't the boys who did it, but it was his daughter. And you'd be talking to her, and all of a sudden... You'd, you'd see this. And it's like, well, that's weird. It's family resemblance. We learn, we pick up certain behaviors and mannerisms because we're in, by God's grace, we're in a particular family. Well, Jesus is saying the behavior and mannerism that is going to tell people that we look like our father is when we love our neighbor and we pray for those who persecute us. On October 20th, 1948, in a Korean village called Soon Chun, which was near the 38th parallel, 
a group of communist sympathizers went on a killing spree throughout the town. Two young men, one named, uh, and I'm going to butcher their names, Dong In Son and Dong Sin Son, were killed by a friend of theirs named Chai Sun. Chai Soon let the court know when the army moved in and restored order and the folks who did it were identified and arrested and it was found out that Chai Soon was the one who actually killed or pulled the trigger, literally killing the two brothers. And in court, their father, who was a pastor, stood before everyone and said, now listen, uh, you, you know who I am, you know what's going on, it's been proven. And he looked at the young man and he said to him, you owe me a debt. Everybody there, because uh, Korea was a, a shame and honor culture, everybody there expected that the pastor's next request was going to be, you owe me a debt, you killed my sons, and so I get to kill you. That's not what he said. He said, you owe me a debt, you took my sons, so now you are going to become my son. He adopted him. He adopted him, brought him into his house, began praying for him, began witnessing to him. Two years later, the young man is baptized. A year after that, he goes to seminary. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Because fueled by God's grace, we're showing a particular family resemblance. Third and finally, Jesus is speaking to us about wholeness, not perfection. He's speaking to us about wholeness and not perfection. Kyle and I meet on Thursday mornings and over the finest cuisine. By that, I mean sausage McMuffins or an egg McMuffin from McDonald's. Uh, we hash out the service for the week. I actually, by that point, uh, am supposed to know enough about what I'm going to say that we can pick hymns and we can talk about the service and what's going to happen. And as we were talking about the sermon this week, uh, Kyle made the statement that verse 48 is probably the most terrifying thing in the entire Bible. Be perfect like God is perfect. Friends, it's easy to misunderstand that statement. On the one hand, we could look at that and go, well, wait, listen, there's no way in the world I could ever be perfect like God is perfect. So what's going on here is Jesus is simply telling me, he's reminding me that I'm a sinner and I need to repent and I need God's grace. I don't really need to worry about all that you have heard it said, but I say to you, because this is just showing me it's a standard I can't meet. Well, that's a crummy way to read the Bible, so let's not do that. Instead, let's understand that the word that Jesus uses twice in verse 48, that word perfect, is the Greek, is the Greek word teleos, not the Greek word hagios. You're saying, okay, that matters because... Matters because I went to school for a long dang time to be able to tell you the difference between these two words, and here they are. Hagios means holiness. 
Jesus is not saying to us, you need to be holy as your heavenly father is holy. And there's a reason he's doing this. Now, the Bible elsewhere says this. But here's why Jesus twists it. Because if you said to the Pharisees, you need to be holy, you need to be set apart as God is holy. They would look at you and go, well, we are. Absolutely. Look at all the rules we keep. Look at the way in which we keep the Sabbath. Look at the way in which we have built this entire hedge around the law. They would have responded to God's call for holiness by pointing to their external displays of piety. But Jesus doesn't say hagios. Jesus says teleos. In other words, be whole as your heavenly father is whole. What's that mean? He wants us to be singular in who we are. That there's not one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside. Now, I don't know about you, but that is one of my singular great frustrations about my life and my walk with Jesus. Is there is continually this dissonance between what I know or what I profess to believe in my behavior, or sometimes there's this dissonance between my behavior, which is good, but if you really knew what I was thinking, you'd be absolutely scandalized. I love that illustration from Alistair Begg. If you really knew the truth about me and what I'm thinking, you wouldn't, you wouldn't listen to a word I'm saying, but that's okay because if I really knew the truth about you and your behavior, I wouldn't bother wasting my time. Friends, the call that Jesus gives us is a call to wholeness. That there's not to be this vast and sort of uh, just really telling dichotomy between what's going on on the outside and what's going on on the inside. No, he calls us like God the Father, like the Trinity. He calls us to be whole. He calls us to a singularity, not just of purpose, but he calls us to a singularity of person. Again, that which Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he will live to the nth degree. You want to talk about loving your enemies? Jesus gave his life for his enemies. And he did so so that those who were once enemies of God, as Peter reminds us, would now be called sons and daughters of God. That we who were once not God's people would now be called God's people. In fact, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that God so loved the world. And in John's gospel, the world is all that that stands in against and in opposition to God and to his Christ. God loved the world and so he gave his son. But it isn't just the incarnation. It isn't just Jesus' life. 
But we need to think about his words, most notably his words on the cross. You recall some of Jesus' last words? Father, take it out on them, make them pay. Father, send your angels because I'm tired of this nonsense. It's time to kick butt, take names. It's not what he says. He says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Friends, we come to the table this morning understanding that God calls us to love our enemies and to pray for them, that this is possible only by the grace of God, and that in so doing we are showing the kind of wholeness that Jesus not only calls us to in the sermon, but the kind of wholeness that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross, which is what we proclaim as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, first of all, forgive us. And there's all kinds of stuff probably in this sermon that we need to be forgiven for. Like we, we like made up scripture. And we're, it, it scratches where we itch and so we go with it. And then we're just kind of lazy and so we don't do the work of actually reading your word and figuring out what you would say to us. And so there's that. And then, Father, so often uh, we, we, don't, <laughs> we don't love our enemies by praying for them. And we certainly don't do what Jesus did and forgive them. And we're certainly not willing to do what Jesus did or, most notably, what Pastor Soan did. And yet, Lord, your word tells us that uh, the one unanswerable attribute that the church has is the love that we demonstrate, not just for our love for one another, but the love we demonstrate for those who revile us and those who persecute us. And Father, as Jesus has already said, there will be some who will do this who are going to think that they're actually doing the Lord's work. So Lord, help us in this day and age of a lack of unity and help us in this day and age in which the rhetoric is all cranked up and everybody's losing their mind. Father, help us uh, to heed uh, not uh, a plan of action that is concocted in another arena, but Father, uh, would we be faithful to your plan of action? Would we pray for those who hate us? Would we pray for our enemies? Would we pray for those who persecute us? And Father, uh, would you give us the discernment to uh, be able to recognize the difference between real persecution and people who just have a difference of opinion? Because we're not very good at that either. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.